When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've reached the middle of yet another tumultuous week and here is the news so far. Priti Patel is still in her job despite a massive campaign to smear her by the civil service. The Italians have banned kissing in an effort to block the further spread of coronavirus. We've been told to put our lives on hold for three months to prepare for the worst. That news coming out of Downing Street and we're all going to be driving around in cars pretty soon fuelled by crops. Marvellous, isn't it? We'll be bringing you up to date with all the latest news from Downing Street after their pandemic plan was revealed yesterday. Some of the news this morning is like something out of a science fiction movie. Uh, there's talk about facial scanning. There's talk about temperatures being taken by robots. There's talk uh, of shutting things down. Even Parliament, very possibly, uh, might succumb. I was talking to some MPs last night at a function I was at, and some of them are thinking that Parliament itself may cease to function in the normal way that it does at the moment. First up, though, we're talking British troops and a new deployment. As if they haven't got enough going on, it turns out we are now sending 250 soldiers to Mali, one of the world's Islamic extremist trouble spots, which is described as extremely messy and complex. Now, according to the Ministry of Defence, if we don't send these soldiers out there, it may well mean that there's a bunch of refugees heading our way, uh, and we've all seen what's happening on the border between Greece and Turkey, and I guess we don't want any of that. But we'll be talking to Rear Admiral Dr Chris Parry uh, to take his view on all of it. Coming up later on, we'll be discussing why the housing business can't seem to work out what to do next, and we'll be bringing you Prime Minister's questions as well. The week boxing match between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn in the company uh, of YouTuber Maya Tuzzi. 0344 Plus, later on today, we are joined by celebrity chef Cyrus Todiwala, who's got a beautiful new book out uh, called Simple Spice Vegetarian. So we'll be uh, looking into all of that. Uh, it is World Obesity Day, apparently, as well, whatever that means. Uh, so uh, I went to a kebab event last night just to celebrate it. So very good indeed. Thank you very much indeed. I thought celebrating World Obesity Day meant you're supposed to eat loads. 0344 499-1000 is the number. You're listening to me and watching me as well on the fastest growing radio station in the world. This is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So I'm aware of the fact that some people watching and listening to this show, on YouTube as well, by the way, uh, or Facebook, or indeed on Twitter if you want to watch us there too, uh, will not be absolutely certain where Mali is. Uh, but it has become one of the world's fastest growing Islamic threats, it would appear. And apparently British personnel are being sent out there uh, to join some already um, uh, combat mission troops in, this, in that particular country, in the Sahel region, uh, because what they need to do is to somehow ensure that what is a, an Islamic extremist insurgency does not turn into something bigger. Let's talk to Rear Admiral Dr Chris Parry, uh, former NATO commander, of course, and give us some insight into what's going on in that part of the world. Uh, Dr Chris, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, a lot of people will be asking the question, and I know it might seem... Um, a rather irrelevant question to ask of the armed forces at this time. But, you know, we've been told by Boris Johnson that we might need the army on standby for all sorts of things in this country should the coronavirus get any worse. Is this, is this a good time to be sending troops to a place like Mali? Well, I think it was always planned. Um, middle of last year, I think they identified the need to send some additional troops. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, we've already got people there. They're flying three Chinook heli helicopters that are helping the French. I think we've got to also bear in mind that the French have got 4,500 troops there. It's predominantly a Francophone region anyway. Mm. They've got historical roots there. And we've been helping them on a bilateral basis up till now. And I think the time has come where people feel that, A, that force needs to be supported. Um, but also, secondly, they need to invest much more in intelligence, gathering, in training and other things for the local forces. And what is it about uh, Mali at the moment which is so dangerous? What's dangerous is that uh, while we've been concentrating on refugees and migrants from North Africa, what's bubbling away is a huge sub-Saharan Africa. Right. 
and uh, the lack of economic opportunities, the vast numbers of young people, some of whom we see obviously escaping through North Africa and through uh, some of the Atlantic islands to try and get into Europe. Uh, that problem's only going to get worse when you add a very extremist uh, group of uh, uh, people who are seeking basically power at yeah. everybody else's expense. I mean, we're, we're talking about an Islamic State-type organization in Boko Haram and its affiliates mm. that are trying to take over the region and exploit its resources and, and kill the people. And have Boko um, Haram sort of expanded their area of, of influence then? Yeah, that's right. I mean, normally we associate them with northern Nigeria, but uh, the, the region that we're talking about is the Sahel. It's not just Mali, it's Burkina Faso, it's Chad, uh, and all those other sort of areas uh, that appear on the Pointless programme <laughs> on right. BBC One. Right. That, I was, well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, nobody really knows the geography. I was going to say, because quite often in that part of the world, the countries um, sort of move around a little bit and suddenly new countries get new names and different parts of countries like South Sudan are suddenly created, you know. So yeah. I think it's quite hard for people to follow, to be honest. Yeah, the borders are pretty uh, porous and uh, indistinct and, uh, you know, people and power sort of moves across borders. So what we have to do is try and get a, a really good comprehensive view of what's going on there, uh, actually establish who can actually help us amongst the local population. And to be fair, this part of the world, you know, people aren't used to warfare in many ways. So uh, we have to help them, stiffen their, uh, their resolve and protect them. I mean, this is a United Nations uh, peacekeeping operation. It just happens to have a lot of violent opposed to us doing that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the trouble with peacekeeping missions, of course, though, is that you can't actually do very much as peacekeeping forces. But there is also a French kind of um, combat mission going on at the same time. And it would appear that the British troops are going to be part of both of those operations. So on the one hand, British troops are going to be in danger because they're part of a combat mission. And on the other hand, they're going to be in a peacekeeping force where they can't really shoot anyone. Yeah, this has been the problem ever since the end of the Cold War. You look yeah. at the Balkans, you and, uh, you know, we, we tend to try and call these peace support operations now because peacekeeping, uh, it's not that. You've got this ragged interface. There's no real uh, distinction between peace and war, mm. and it's pretty much war amongst the people. Mm. Um, and, and that's the nature of modern conflict, I'm afraid. So we have to differentiate between the good guys and the bad guys. We need to deal with the bad guys, support the good guys, and um, get out uh, as soon as the problem is solved. And as far as the the, the, the the individual soldiers that are going out, they appear to be personnel from the Light Dragoons, the Cavalry Regiment. Um, do they have a special sort of uh, expertise in that particular area? Well, normally they're associated with reconnaissance uh, in armoured vehicles and things like that. I'm not sure about the force position, but we have to remember that all our soldiers, whether they're cavalry, artillery or whatever, are soldiers first and specialists second. So they will add... Uh, they'll, they'll uh, quite a lot of the local resistance, I would suggest, and, and the indigenous peacekeeping forces, they'll add specialist skills to um, uh, the French force, and also they'll support our three Chinooks that are operating there. Uh, and, of course, quite a lot of things will be going on in the background, doing intelligence gathering and processing and right. things like that. It's not just what you see in the front line. Yeah, I'm also reading that the American uh, forces are likely to be withdrawing out of Africa in general. Donald Trump seems to be doing a lot of this at the moment. He's obviously uh, working his way through a deal in Afghanistan, which means that, uh, that, that the British forces, I guess, as well as the American forces, will eventually pull out. Um, he's obviously doing that to some extent uh, to sort of um, um, offer sucker, I suppose, to his, to his voters and to the American domestic um, agenda because he's always said he doesn't want boots on the ground. But if the Americans pull out of Africa, what does that mean for the sort of refugee problem? Well, you know, I think it, that's partly his agenda. I think what people are, need to understand in the modern world is in the past, whenever there was a crisis, the Americans would say, hey, look, let's put together a posse. We'll be the sheriff. We'll hand out some deputy badges. Go out and do it. We yeah. call it a, a coalition. What the Americans are saying nowadays, and it's not just uh, Donald Trump, he's saying nowadays we want people to sort out their own problems in their regions and their local area. And if necessary, we'll send the cavalry. Mm. Uh, but only if you actually uh, do something on your own behalf. What the Americans are really fed up with is having to bear the burden of all these operations without actually people pulling their weight. And there's a message there for some of our European partners, to tell you the truth. Yeah, well, maybe there's a message there for the UK as well, because, I mean, there's a lot of people who would say exactly that. You know, why not let these countries sort out their own problems? But as you've pointed out, in this particular case, if we don't help sort it out, it may well be that the problem lands on our doorstep in the form of a lot of refugees. Yeah, and also uh, a, a large number of failed countries where terrorists and extremists can actually 
uh, sort of uh, train, they can actually operate and they can project force against yeah. us and against our citizens. So unless we want it to be another Afghanistan where the Taliban are running uh, running free, uh, we have to do something about it because the locals simply can't. They don't have the sophisticated weapons systems and training right. that we're used to here. Um, you know, it, I keep saying to people, actually, oddly enough, that uh, one of the reasons that people didn't take an interest in this country uh, when we were in Afghanistan is that things were happening in Kandahar rather than Kent. Right. Well, the message is they soon will be happening in Kent if we don't deal with these problems uh, further down the line. So have the Americans got it wrong, then, to say that they don't want to be the police uh, of, of force of the world and they're leaving it to individual countries to sort themselves out? Because well, they, no, they don't have the no. same ramifications that we have, do they? Well, they've got 3,000-mile moat either side, of course. Yeah. It helps. Um, but the point is, it's not so much that individual countries have to help, it's that regions have to help. So if it's Europe's problem, which this area is, they want Europe to sort it out first. It's the same in, uh, in the Asia-Pacific. They want Japan, South Korea, all the others to sort out their own problems. But if necessary, they'll come in. It sort of happened, if you remember, with Libya. Yeah. Um, it was a bit sort of... That wasn't alarmed. a great success, was it? Uh, I think the, op the operation wasn't a success because it went from being protecting uh, people in Benghazi to regime change. Yeah. It was not exactly what everybody voted which, for. Which we are um, now still seeing the damage from yeah. and we're still seeing people turning up on the, on the Greek border uh, who are coming out of Libya. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that, that is entirely down to the fact that we, we uh, hacked off the Russians and Chinese because we said it's all about protecting Benghazi and then went to regime change. Right. As soon as Syria came up, the Russians and Chinese said, well, we saw what you did in Libya. We're not having it in Syria. Mm. Um, and so you, you can fairly uh, blame the politicians there for that one, I'm afraid, not right. the military, who actually conducted a pretty good operation. But the key point is... Britain and France couldn't actually take on a tin pot, third-rate country like Libya on their own without American assistance. And that, that's an indictment, really. Well, it really is. And, I mean, what it sounds to me, Chris, from what you're saying, is that this is the new kind of front line uh, of not just military deployment, but everything. Because what we're, yeah. what we're really saying here is, is if we don't get to grips with some of these African countries, we are going to have an endless sprawl uh, of human traffic coming uh, at Europe, basically, by the tens of thousands on a weekly basis. That's absolutely right. In fact, um, 10 years ago, I was asked what the greatest threat to Europe was in, yeah. a, in a public presentation. And I actually said it's going to be uncontrolled migration from Africa and the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, uh, obviously, I got a lot of flack for that, but it seems to have come to pass. Well, it does seem to come to pass, but I'm sure it, takes, <laughs> it gives you no pleasure to say that. But, I mean, it really is. I don't know what's happening at the moment because for the last few days we haven't really been getting that much um, footage from uh, from the Greek border with Turkey. But I understand an awful lot of the people who are on that border trying to get into Europe illegally are basically not from uh, Syria. They're all from North Africa, uh, Afghanistan, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Yeah, I mean, one of the big problems that, uh, you know, I hope uh, the EU is going to sort out once we're clear, uh, apart from the fact that, you know, you've got the constraining element of the euro, is that the EU does not have a coherent external borders policy. And in an age where demographics will be the key driver in practically everything, they need to get their act together. I went on the website recently, and the EU has been congratulating itself that it's been developing the policy for 29 years. Right. That's, ridic that's ridiculous. Well, it is. And so when are sort of joint defence forces going to take this matter seriously? Because, you know, I started off this conversation thinking, why are we sending 250 troops out there? I'm now thinking, why are we not sending 250,000 troops out there? And I know we haven't got that many, but, you know, why are we not getting together with other European forces? and going, this is what we need to do. This should be our number one priority. Yeah, Mike, you and me both. Um, and, you know, these are questions that the EU avoids. They go for the easy stuff. They go for stuff that suits their agenda. And right now, uh, that question, A, is not being asked by the right people. And answers which are forthcoming aren't being adopted. Uh, this is part of the reason why, I have to tell you, I want to leave the European Union. Well, yeah, right. well luckily we have. Um, so that's one yeah. good thing. And this is nothing to do with the EU. This is a joint sort of Anglo-French operation, isn't it? And presumably um, France has got quite a lot of interest in that region. Yeah, and I think you know, this is actually an indication of how well the Brits will support our European partners in future, even though we're outside the European Union. Mm. Um, we're actually quite good at this sort of thing, and uh, but we do it on our own terms rather than obviously doing it within the framework of an overall European army, as they call it. Because, quite frankly, um, in 20 years, while Afghanistan and Iraq has been going on, we've been, frankly, under-investing in our defence forces. We're incapable of taking on 
Russia and China in any meaningful way, because that's where the real threats are coming from. And we need to recapitalize. I think that's the uh, <laughs> bureaucratic convention, quite a lot of uh, fighting capability. Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, if we've got more money to, to spend, we've got a budget coming up next week. Uh, it'd be nice to see some money being hurled at the defence budget, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. But I think uh, before we do that, we have to have a really good strategic review of what we want our armed forces to do. And what that needs to be is a discussion between what the public and politicians want them to do, what resources are available, and what is militarily practicable. And that conversation has to be a dynamic one that takes place over time. It's not just not, not a single calculation. Yeah. Uh, in the past, and I, I, <laughs> I, at desk level, I wrote the 1998 Strategic Defence Review. We tried to balance those three things. But I'm afraid ever since then, it's about how can we cut money out of the defence forces to subsidise everything else. I think the other thing you've got to remember is that everything has been slaved to our operations in Afghanistan and Iraq over the last 20 years. And the other capabilities uh, have been neglected. There's no question about that. Mm. And you can see now, you know, with two aircraft carriers coming on stream, I was in Prince of Wales in Liverpool on Monday. We've got some fantastic capabilities. We have to make sure... Uh, that we balance our armed forces to reflect the threats and opportunities that exist out for the next 20 years or so. And as far as other parts of the world which are kind of, you know, bubbling under, as it were, I mean, are you satisfied that Afghanistan, if it is left to its own devices, will no longer be a problem as such? <laughs> Who knows? Afghanistan, you know, is laying at the heart of that region for you know, quite a long time now. Yeah, I think uh, Afghanistan is probably best left alone to its own devices. There are regional implications. But frankly, there are bigger threats to our way of life and to what we have as values. You know, there's a huge sort of uh, area of conflict threatening in the Asia-Pacific region uh, based on the uh, strategic competition between uh, China and the United States. Uh, and that is something I think we're going to see more of. Um, you've got China fortifying these reefs in the South and East China Sea. Uh, the countries around there are getting very nervous. The Americans' position there is being threatened. And, uh, you know, on top of that, we've got all the other things like um, the effects of climate change. We've got coronavirus. We've got all these other things. And we need to focus on these big strategic issues and stop, I'm afraid, arguing about stuff that actually really matter. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Rear Admiral Dr Chris Parry, talking absolute sense as ever. Uh, it's the one show you ha hear Common Sense on. It's not the only show you hear Common Sense on this radio station, by the way, uh, because, of course, Julie Hartley Brewer's here uh, every morning from 6.30. Dan Wooten's here every afternoon from 4, uh, so you want to check in uh, with his new drive time show as well. The point about Common Sense is that there's not much of it to go around. We've got plenty of it here. You guys who call us have got loads of it, but here's the question for you. Should we not be absolutely pouring every single resource that we have got militarily uh, into Mali, into that part of Africa, which is basically spawning hundreds of thousands of immigrants coming to Europe to try and find themselves a better life, to try and get away uh, from the war-torn areas that they live in, to try and get away from what can only be described as the most ghastly and horrible crowd of people uh, known as Boko Haram, uh, who are as bad as ISIS. Uh, we need to clamp down on it. We need to stop another wave of immigration coming through Western Europe, coming through Eastern Europe first, into Western Europe, uh, into the Greece because the borders can't be controlled. The European Union has already promised to spend hundreds of millions of pounds trying to protect Greece uh, from the current wave of people, most of whom are coming from Afghanistan and Pakistan and Northern Africa as well. Surely we need to spend more money. Surely we need more resources. Surely when the budget comes around, Boris Johnson um, and Rishi Sumak should be looking at this and saying... Here's where we're going to put some more resources. Here's where we're going to put some more money. The Department uh, of Defence needs it. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We'll be talking about the coronavirus situation coming up throughout the show here as well, of course, because as hours go by, uh, each hour brings a different uh, sort of twist and turn to the story. Today, uh, we're going to be talking uh, to the Federation of Small Businesses because a lot of firms apparently are facing losses uh, if there is um, a situation where people are sent home, if there is a situation where businesses have to be closed down, where offices have to be shut on the basis that uh, uh, you know coronavirus is spreading too quickly. 
quickly for it to be properly controlled and contained because it turns out that there's some kind of insurance error which we'll talk about, which we'll explain uh, because apparently if um, the notifiable disease tick has not been made by the government, then it may well be that some of these companies will be out of pocket despite the fact that Boris Johnson said yesterday that all options were going to be open. Let's go back to the phones and talk to James, uh, who's in Clapham. Hello, James. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Not too bad, Mike. Mike, I've got two points to mention. Yeah, go on. But uh, the, the issue on uh, the Greek-Turkish uh, border. Um, basically, the question needs to be asked, why is Turkey, as a fellow NATO member, destabilising another NATO member, as in Greece? Yeah. And why should Europe have to pay for the vanity project of Turkey with their involvement in Iraq and their involvement in Syria, which is driving this issue, Mike. Yes, it's a very good question because there are people who are in Greece at the moment, and we know that there's a bit of enmity between those two countries, Greece and Turkey, who are basically accusing Turkey of deliberately shaking shaking the tree, if you like, uh, to, to, to almost kind of make a point which is that, you know, if we don't do properly uh, looking after these people, this is what will happen. Exactly, and, and what Erdogan is, Erdogan is basically carving himself out a little Ottoman Empire with basically Iraq and Syria, and we're standing by and watching him do it. And as a NATO member, he should be summoned up to Brussels and asked and made to explain what his scenario is by destabilising Greek uh, uh, Greece, which is practically financially ruined. Uh, you know, the European Union is now saying Greece is their shield. Where was this shield six years ago, Mike, when they stood and did nothing? Yes. No, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, right, if we are um, sort of watching parts of parts of Africa becoming very, very unstable, uh, which will inevitably lead to the thing that we know it will lead to, which is them coming here, we've got to stop that, haven't we? Yes, we have, Mike. And we have to be involved. You know, we, we have to basically stop the, the trafficking of these people and the movement of these people. And you quite rightly said, it is from that area, from Western Sahara with Mali, and it's pushing up into Libya. And at the end of the day, Mike, for the human rights part, to stop these people being made modern-day slaves yeah. in the Libyan slave market, we've got to intervene, Mike. We no. just can't stand by anymore. Well, that's it. And I think we need to take the view that this is very, very important, not just for uh, the, the, the good of Western Europe and not just for the good of Africa itself, but for the good of this country too, uh, for heaven's sake. Listen, thanks, James, for uh, kicking us off on that one as well. 0344 499 uh, EU leaders, apparently, uh, have promised 700 million euros to Greece uh, to keep those migrants who are on the border coming in from Turkey from actually breaching that border and getting themselves in to uh, Western Europe and finding their way possibly through France to Calais to Dover because that's what we're talking about here. 0344 499 is the number. Let's talk now, though, uh, to Dave Penman, General Secretary of the FDA, which is the Trade Union for UK Senior and Middle Management Civil Servants. What we know about the Priti Patel scenario is that there is, as Michael Gove announced, some kind of inquiry going on uh, internally inside the government. It's supposed to be looking not just at Priti Patel's uh, stewardship of the Home Office, but it's supposed to be looking at her ministerial career in total. It seems to me uh, there's an awful lot of people uh, who don't like Priti Patel. There seems to be an awful lot of people People who have got something in for Pretty Patel, uh, because some of the stories coming out about her uh, are pretty eye-watering, to say the least, but so far uh, not really good enough to get rid of her. Let's see what Dave thinks. Hi, Dave. Very good morning. Good morning. Now, why are people so frightened of Pretty Patel would be my first question. Well, it's not about being frightened of Pretty Patel. What, what's being suggested is now in three separate government departments, individuals who have worked for her have raised concerns about her behaviour suggesting that that has uh, been bullying and intimidatory. And, and really, there's a difference between strong management. There's a difference between people who have got a big agenda and want to force that through and want things to happen and behaving in a manner which um, uh, destroys people's lives and careers. And, and there's a big gap between it. So this isn't about the government's agenda. It's not about policy. It's about the behaviour of individuals in the workplace. Would you be able to sit there with a straight face and tell me that there isn't a campaign to get rid of her in the civil service, though? Absolutely, because this isn't about Pretty Patel as either 
the Home Secretary or the Secretary of State uh, uh, for International Development. This is about Priti Patel, the individual, and how she behaves um, uh, in government departments with those who work with her. Now, these are simply allegations. They've not um, uh, been proved either way. And one of the reasons for that is there is not a meaningful, transparent process for civil servants to raise complaints against ministers. And it should be in ministers' interests, as well as civil servants' interests, that there is one of those, so that there can be a proper investigation. And if it's found that the allegations are not proven, then she can say that, that, that she is innocent. But just now all we've got is allegations yeah. and then counterclaims. But there's going to be more allegations, aren't there? Because let's start with the one that came out yesterday about the woman who supposedly took an overdose as a result of being bullied by Pretty Patel. Now, it turns out today that that very same woman actually only worked for Pretty Patel for two weeks, had underlying issues. She'd had, had taken an overdose before, which had nothing to do with her uh, office situation. And it turns out it was the home office itself that mishandled her case. And it was nothing to do uh, with Pretty Patel. And to, to add insult to injury, it was five years ago. So the difficulty is these are not things that should be played out in the court of public opinion. It's not for you or I to judge whether in those two weeks the, the behaviour of um, uh, the minister contributed to any of that or not. It should be subject to an independent investigation. And this is the difficulty we've got. But why wasn't it done at the time? Because there is no process for dealing with complaints against ministers. Nothing. If you're a civil servant, go and look for the bit of paper that says, how do you raise a complaint against the civil servants? And actually, the revelation yesterday from Newsnight was that despite that, in the Department for International Development, they specifically said, as a result of the experience, that they wanted to put on record with the Cabinet Office details of what had happened in Difford so that, should Pretty Patel be considered for the job in the future, the experience in Difford would be considered. Now, again, these well, are all well, allegations. Well, these, again, are allegations, but presumably they were considered um, and they were uh, dismissed. But that's for the Prime Minister. So the Prime Minister either was made aware of these allegations and ignored them, in which case he didn't care, or he wasn't made aware of the allegations, in which case the process doesn't work. So it's clearly unacceptable both for civil servants and ministers to be in this position where no one can definitively say one way or the other. She can claim her innocence, and individuals can say we raise concerns about her behaviour. What we need is an effective and transparent process to sort these matters out. And how because do you think all of these stories are getting into the papers then? Because every journalist in Whitehall is trying to find out what happened. That's what, you know, my phone rings uh, uh, constantly. Oh, so, um, so you're telling people them. People you, no, I'm not telling them, <laughs> right, because they're all trying to find out what happened. Because well, somebody's telling them. Of course. And if you're a civil servant and you've got no way of actually making a complaint against a minister, then it leads to this. It potentially leads to people being frustrated by this, by the way that it's being dealt with, and therefore going to the press rather than getting it handled internally. Well, the why has none of this ever come up before? Well, it, Why is it suddenly all now centred around one individual minister uh, and all of this stuff's been dragged up from the past about one individual minister where there have been a myriad number, uh, almost an uh, uh, you know, unidentifiable number of ministers over the decades uh, that none of this is applied to? So if you look at what the, the, the accusations of what happened in Difford, what it tells you is the process. It's a behind-closed-door process. What that was supposed to be was the Department of International Development essentially sending a memo to the Cabinet Office and saying, uh, you know, this goes in your kind of dossier, this gets considered, um, uh, if that's the case. So that tells you what happens. If there are other cases like this... So this there is, is a mechanism, then, by, what, by, 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 which, you can, by which you can complain. So you've got a black book in the Cabinet Office which can be ignored. And there's also a liability here. The, 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 the Prime Minister is the Minister for the Civil Service. He has a duty of care for the health and well-being of civil servants. If this was a civil servant where potentially there had been three separate occasions where there were serious accusations of bullying, there'd be a record, there'd be a decision made, and there'd be choices made of employment. If it's a minister... There is nothing, there's no regulation. But you're basically no telling me that in the history of time, nobody has ever um, been a bully as a minister, uh, because otherwise that would have come out, presumably one way or another, that this is the first time that anything like this has ever happened, and it's all because of one woman who happens to be called Pretty Patel. Because no, I've, not, I've not seen anyone in the civil service until this moment complaining that there isn't any process. No, I'm not telling you that. What I'm telling you is, if it has happened in the past, we don't know because it's a secret process. Well, why do we know about this one? 
because it's spilled out into the press. That's why, because we had the extraordinary no, events, we had the, extra- the, the extraordinary events of a permanent secretary and uh, resigning. No, 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 no. It all started. Be- no, it started before he resigned. I mean, he's claiming that he resigned as a result of the leaks. A result of the briefing against him. And well, that's what he claims. That's yeah. not been proven either. Well, there was certainly was briefing against them. I don't think. I well, think how that's do you know that? Fact, because for ten days there was nothing but stories in the press about them. There was also nothing but stories about about her. You know that apparently MI6 didn't trust her. That MI5 didn't fancy her very much. You know it goes both ways. What I'm saying, Dave, is that you can't sit there and tell me that this is the first ever time there's been tension between a minister and a civil servant or an entire department. I'm not. What I'm saying to you is, in relation to bullying, this is, if you, the story started with civil servants who had went to the press about their concerns about bullying behaviour in the Home Office. Yes. And one of the reasons they probably went to the press is because there is no way of dealing with this. So I'm not telling you this is the only case. I'm telling you, actually, there are probably dozens of other cases. But why are we not hearing about, about them? Because I think because that, would help, that would help everybody else understand that this, that this is not simply a political witch hunt. So thank you for making the argument that we are saying we need a transparent process, right? We need. So what would that look that. like for you then? So it would have to be independent of government. It would mean it would allow civil servants. If you look at what's happened in Parliament, similar thing happened. There was a process that no one believed in. The MPs regulated themselves. No one trusted that process. For five years, no one raised a single complaint. When there was an inquiry into what happened, 200 people came forward with accusations of bullying and harassment because no one was prepared to go through what was a process that they felt that didn't have confidence in. That's exactly where we are just now. We need something independent of government. We can't have a minister stand up in Parliament and say, I have my full confidence in the Home Secretary, and then announce that his department is going to investigate, having already said he has full confidence, and then say, oh, by the way, when that report comes, it goes to the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister has also already said that he has full confidence in the Home Secretary. How is any civil servant to have confidence in a process when the ministers, before there's been a single investigation, stand up in Parliament and pledge allegiance to the Home Secretary? Well, you find, I'm sure you'd find it a bit weird, would you not, if you were Philip Rutnam and you had done such a terrible job at the Department for uh, Transport where he admits that he did a terrible job, uh, but he wasn't punished for that job. In fact, he was promoted. He got himself a knighthood. Um, I don't really think that's the issue here. Well, it's one of the issues. No, it's one of the issues, isn't it? No, it's not, because this is not about Philip Rutnam's career at the Home Office. Well, surely surely it is. No, surely it is, Dave, because if she is the Home Secretary and she wants to change who is running the Home Office as he was because she doesn't have faith in the way that he's doing it, because, frankly, his record would suggest that, why can she not remove him? As a Home Secretary, if there are concerns about your civil servant, yeah. whether it's the permanent secretary or the staff, you clearly there's a process for dealing with that if you right. felt that there was an issue around that. What it doesn't well, do is give green light to bully. And let's be clear, the stories that started this... He's not claiming that he was bullied, though. He's but, claiming but other exactly, people were bullied. Exactly. The stories that started this are not about... Uh, Sir Philip, they're about staff in the Home Office. So this started not about whether Pretty Patel wanted to get rid of Philip Rutnam or not. This started with staff in the Home Office going public about their concerns about her behaviour. Yes. Behaviour, And so remember, you, you are going to sit now there. Being suggested you are going to sit there. You are going to sit there, Dave, with a straight face and say this is not politically motivated. I don't think anyone listening to this is going to believe you. Well, I can tell you absolutely it's not politically motivated. It is about the behaviour of ministers. So where did this start? What was the first story? The first story was accusations about the Home Secretary and her behaviour. Since then, we've had accusations in two other government departments. That's where this started. None of them named, right? Nobody has come forward to say, I was bullied on this day, this was what was said to me, and this was what happened afterwards. Nobody's done that. I'll tell you why. Why not? There are two things here. One, there is no process for them to do that. Well, apparently all you've got to do is ring up up the Times news desk. Right. There is no way to do that. And why it is extraordinary is that civil servants are not supposed to speak to the press. It actually says... Well, is that a sacrifical offence then? That they're not supposed to... Well, it's it's potentially a disciplinary It's a disciplinary. So these people should be being disciplined then. So that tells you how extraordinary the circumstances are when those people feel there is no way for me actually to stop what's happening to me and I've got to put my career on the line to be able to go outside around it. What everyone needs here is a clear, 
transparent process. So the Home Secretary has the chance to defend her reputation and defend any allegations, and civil servants have the opportunity to challenge behaviour if it's inappropriate. Because this is getting in the way of government. Government's got an awful lot to do just now, yeah, both in terms of Brexit right. and, and the public health emergency, and it doesn't need this restriction. So what about the inquiry that's being held? Have you got any confidence in that? Well, the, the, the difficulty there is, as I've said, is the minister in charge of that inquiry has already picked a side. He's already pledged his allegiance, and I think that causes concern about its independence. But the Prime Minister's spokesman was asked a whole series of questions yesterday about the inquiry, couldn't answer them. How is it going to be conducted? Who's going to conduct it? Is it going to look into the, the allegations in other government departments? Are staff going to be um, uh, able to give evidence anonymously? How is it going to deal with specific allegations? Answers there came none in all of this. So until we know how this is going to be conducted, we are hedging our bets around whether we have confidence in it or not. So when you say we, you're talking about a war here, aren't you? You've got a war footing going on here. It's not a war footing. What, what we're trying to do... You're is trying to trying get rid of Priti Patel, aren't you? Why don't you just admit this, it? This is not... We are a non-political union, and this is not about Priti Patel really? in terms of anything to do with... So politics. why has no other Home Secretary ever been targeted in this way? We keep coming back to the same thing. There is no process for dealing with complaints of behaviour. Can you imagine just for a moment that this actually could be about behaviour? And that actually there might be serious concerns about behaviour? Well, one person's behaviour is another person's management. It's that simple. Dave, listen, I'm getting harassed by my producer. Uh, I might have to complain that he's bullying me, uh, but he's telling me to stop talking to you because we've been going for too long. Dave Penman, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating situation. This is war, ladies and gentlemen. Make no mistake. And of course, the General Secretary of the FDA would say that it's not, and it's not political, and they're not in any way trying to intimidate or bully or force Pretty Patel out of office. But that's exactly what is going on. I can tell you that for sure. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And don't forget, of course, you can also uh, watch us now live on YouTube. We are streaming this show every single day on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, and lots more of you are joining it every single day. So thank you for doing that. Let's talk to Russell Quirk, though. Uh, he's a man that knows everything there is to know about the property business. Uh, we're now being told uh, by a new report which has just come out uh, from something called the um, Infrastructure uh, Committee, I think, of this country. I didn't know we had one, to be honest. Uh, that basically building on the Greenbelt is the way forward. Russell, very good morning to you. Yeah, morning, Mike. Hi. Well, um, is this the way forward? I mean, the problem with Britain, right? I mean, I always get this. I think I've told this to you before, that when friends of mine come to visit from the US, they always say, why is it that you have all these green fields and then there's a tiny little street in the middle of it where you pile about 55 houses right next to each other and then the rest of it's all fields again? Yeah, so it's not really joined up, this whole Greenbelt thing. Bearing in mind, Greenbelt emanates as a, a kind of construct, a policy from the 1950s. And, right. and it's kind of been left to its own devices ever since, really. And the, the world's moved on, as we know it, in many yeah. respects. So I think that I, 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 I do get the fact that Greenbelt, therefore, needs to be kind of reconsidered. And there's certainly masses of Greenbelt that is not green. Mm. So scrap yards and, you know, building sites and so on. Um, you know, um, industrial areas, etc. Um, the default position by planning authorities and local councils is whenever it's greenbelt, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how ungreen it is, that the answer is generally no. You have to have what are called extra special circumstances to justify building on the greenbelt, which yeah. of course is a restriction. So I do think it needs to be not torn up, but certainly revisited, and some of that greenbelt needs to be reclassified as, if you like, greybelt. Um, but the the contention here by this, yeah, the so-called infrastructure committee. So I didn't think this government did infrastructure anymore because of um, the Paris... Well, I was uh, going to say, I was going to say, what on earth have they been doing for the last 10 years because there's not much infrastructure to speak of? No, no, indeed. But, but look, to say that the answer to building more homes is simply building on the Greenbelt, mm. in theory, it sounds like that makes sense because 15% of the UK is Greenbelt and only about 10% of the UK is built on. And, right. and actually, that's, that's commercial, residential, shopping centres, the whole well, thing. That's a, so, that's a great statistic. I had no idea it was so low. 10%. Yeah, yeah it's, it's tiny, and people probably don't realise that. Um, but, you know, the, I think the, the issue is actually more so with the developers themselves and those developers. That Here's another stat for you. Right now, the biggest developers in the country, so to name a few, the likes of Bovis, Taylor Wimpy, Persimmon and so on, are currently sitting on a land bank of enough land to build 600,000 homes mm. that either has planning permission or could get planning permission. So to say that we need the Greenbelt opened up kind of flies in the face of that stat on the basis that there's lots and lots of land, lots and lots of property mm. that could right now be developed uh, and, and actually sold 
you know, what I guess you could call is a housing crisis, although I have to say, and I don't very often give credit to governments, this government has increased house building over the last three or four years quite significantly. We're up to about 240,000 new homes built a year now right. against a target of 300,000. So I think to have a But will of, they be classed as affordable homes, though? Well, probably not, right? depends on your definition. There's affordable homes, of course, which is homes that are 20% off the value uh, of full market value. And then, of course, there's social housing. Now, social housing is the element that's really suffered over the last few years right. because social housing, as in social rent, council housing, shared ownership, etc., is linked by what are called so, so, uh, Section 106 agreements to general developer output. So, obviously, if we build less, we build less social homes. And right. up until recently, that's exactly what's happened. So, the, the big problem here is not whether you can buy a 500 grand house or 400 grand. It's that there simply aren't enough social houses, as in people sitting on waiting lists on local authorities, mm. of which there are about 2 million now, to, to furnish that particular sector. So, that, that, that's, that's the big problem. And one thing's for sure we definitely need to rethink the way that housing is delivered in the UK. And, and actually, dare I say, we've got to make it less political because when things become political, as we know, and you talk about this all day, yeah. every day, things get very muddied and we start seeing ulterior motives and different kind of um, different ethoses and ideologies at play. And particularly when you have, we've had now, I think we're on our 10th planning uh, housing minister in 10 years. So on the basis of there being no consistency on a ministerial level whatsoever, no wonder we end up kind of bouncing from one kind of uh, housing policy to another, most of which, when they get announced, don't even get fulfilled. So no, we, we, we need, really, we need to put somebody in charge that isn't political and that has a kind of five-year mandate that can really put a strategy in place to solve yeah. Britain's housing crisis. Well, maybe this guy is the, is, the, is the guy, Sir John Armit, who's chairman of the National Infrastructure Commission. I don't know what his antecedents are. I don't know what he believes in. I've no idea what, he, what he's done before. Uh, but one thing he has said uh, is that councils have to stop their silly building on floodplains. I mean, I think we'd all agree with that. Absolutely. You know, including the people who actually live in those houses on floodplains. Every year without fail now, of course, we, we see the consequences of that. And, and somehow we're still surprised that every year we see the consequences yeah. of that. Um, so, yeah, look, it, it, it definitely needs to be addressed. I think it can be addressed. Um, I do wonder sometimes, though, Mike, whether the government's really that bothered. Um, you know, let, let's be honest. If you keep supply shorter than demand mm. and house prices keep going up, then actually as a Conservative government, that's not a bad thing because they're probably the people that vote for you next time. Well, that's very possibly true. Also, if they were really that keen to do something about the housing crisis, uh, whatever, whatever you want to call it, you would think that they would throw a bit more money at it and they would actually make something happen. My worry is that all of this is being driven by this nonsensical target of carbon neutrality uh, by 2035. Because one of the other things that this guy, Sir John, says is talking about uh, ripping out everybody's gas boiler and replacing it with something more electric. Well, you know, um, good luck with that is all I can say. But that's still born of energy, <laughs> whether it's electric well, or yeah. gas. Surely the energy for electricity still gets somebody, in the main by yeah, coal and gas. But also, somebody pointed out to me when we were last talking about this, you know, if you're a gas engineer, what are you supposed to do then? Because there won't yeah. be any gas engineering to be done. Yeah, I do hope we're not going to get to a situation where the woke left kind of prevail in terms of saying, well, look, the way to meet our zero carbon emission target in 2050 is maybe just not to build any houses at all. Yeah. And that, that would certainly do it. Um, yeah, we live in tents. Everybody would live. You know, why not just live in, live in sort of tented cities around the home counties? Unbelievable, isn't it? But this is the trouble. I mean, we've got the budget coming up, right? Now, I'm not even certain uh, that Rishi Sunak can come up with a budget which is not entirely just occupied by coronavirus details and kind of, you know, emergency funds for this, that and the other. Yeah, no, that, 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 and that was news yesterday, of course, that he has rewritten parts of it to include uh, exactly that. I, I do I do worry, as well as a property guy, that property will yet again be pushed to one side, apart from where property is generally seen as a target and a cash cow, a kind of a wallet for the government just to take money out of. Um, and we have seen in successive budgets that happen. Uh, we might see that uh, next week insofar as this, this foreign tax levy yes. on buyers from abroad, which, um, you know, I can see the appeal. I mean, it would raise about £120 million, apparently, which, and, and effectively what it is, he's saying to someone that is domiciled abroad, a foreign buyer, if you want to buy in the UK, you have to pay potentially a 3% stamp duty hike, uh, an, an additional 3% if you want to buy in Britain. Now, the problem with that is that there are large parts of London that kind of rely on those foreign buyers, and, and it might be politically opportunistic for 
certain politicians to say, well, look, let, let's, let's be a bit nationalistic about this and slap a levy on them. But the problem is, if you do take significant demand out of the property market, particularly in some parts of London where things are teetering, then actually you can end up with a weakened market uh, back to kind of where we were in London two or three years ago, which then filters through to being, you know, quite, quite startling negative sentiment in terms of consumer spending in the wider economy. So I do think uh, and I hope that the government will be cautionary in terms of not just doing something that's opportunistic and populist because it might have unintended consequences. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, as far as the actual big business of building is concerned, you know, they're still doing pretty well, aren't they? I mean, the big, I mean, the big arguments that people have in this country are about the smaller companies that are allowed to build uh, on, on plots of land because there's not enough of that going on. Yeah, and that's that's significantly changed over the last 15 or 20 years. So there used to be lots of small builders, lots of self-builders, but now the majority of the 240,000 properties a year that are built are built by the top 10 biggest house builders. And these are the guys with very deep pockets, huge kind of planning departments, lots and lots of resources. And as a consequence, they earn huge sums of money. I mean, the, the big guys like Simon and Bovis, mm. they're posting annual profits of something like a billion pounds a year, and actually by not building all of the homes that they could. So the, the, there's a complete disconnect, really, between what their shareholders insist on, which, of course, is profit, and I get that, I accept that, and kind of societies, the communities want and need in terms of building not just enough houses, but the question is the right houses of the right tenures in the right places. And, and boards of directors of the likes of Bovis, the Sim and Taylor Wimpy and so on. Of course, the, you can't blame them for not caring about that. And, and, and that is the thing that needs to be joined up. And I actually think that what has to happen is that government needs to be a bit kind of private sector here and actually start building properties themselves. So rather than relying on the big developers, they actually start building houses themselves and competing with the developers so that we do end up with the right properties with the right tenures in the right place. But then surely that would mean the government having to hire loads of people with expertise in building um, who would then just rinse them because they've got no idea about business. Well, no, no, I think what they'd have to do is hire people from the private sector. Um, you know, you would set up, and I have actually thought about this, you'd have to set up a, a special purpose vehicle owned by the taxpayer. You'd bring in qualified people from the private sector to run it. They'd have a mandate based on a strategy that would be decided, and that body would build the right houses in the right places. Well, it sounds a bit communist to me, Russell. You sure you haven't been drinking <laughs> some of that funny tea? <laughs> eh? No, actually, it, it, <laughs> it's, it's privatisation light within the public sector. Okay. So I, actually, I think it's the opposite. Okay. Well, listen to this from Beast, who sent a, a tweet, and he says, housing is a joke. Where I live in the Peak District, there is no housing for any young people, but currently there are three hotels in the planning pipeline, all to be sold to outside investors. There is no affordable homes. It's depressing for people who have to move out of the area. Mm. Well, and, and this is a symptom of the fact that what developers will do is to build what suits them and their profit and loss, their balance sheet. Um, and and they, often the planning departments get the blame for this. You know, when I was chairman of planning at uh, Brentwood Council, we used to get loads of stick if a planning application from someone came in for something that the community didn't like, as if it was the planning authority's fault. Unfortunately, it's not. You know, if, if XYZ Limited comes along, buys an acre of land and wants to build, I don't know, whatever, a shopping centre, houses, council housing, a mosque, whatever they want to build, that is a matter for them. And, of course, the planning authority has to then consider that application on its, on its merits. Yeah. Um, so, but, but then, you know, back to the point in terms of it being a bit too democratic, the, the biggest issue you have there is that a lot of these big planning applications are uh, they're kind of adjudicated over by uh, very, um, how can I put this sensitively, uh, council members that don't have much experience when it comes to property and planning. And, uh -huh. of course, they get sucked into the whole NIMBY thing, which is five or six local people saying, dear councillor, I don't want this in my backyard. If you approve it, I will not vote for you at uh, the next election and you'll be out of your job. Yes. So, of course, what happens is the vo vocal minority speak very loudly and it means that you know good planning applications generally don't go through when and where they should do. No, of course they don't. That is, the planning is a massive problem in this country, I have to say. Uh, we may have to do a special on it, Russell, you and I, but just to cheer you up, no end, before I let you go, Department for Transport will publish plans today to introduce petrol blended with 10% bioethanol, uh, so you'll be driving around powered by hay or something. Doesn't ethanol then take fields and fields of 
I think it's quite flammable as well, to be honest. <laughs> I wouldn't do any smoking anywhere near it. <laughs> it sounds like another populist opportunity. It does, doesn't it? Absolutely brilliant. Russell, thanks very much indeed. Russell Quirk, the housing expert, property expert, man of the people, uh, who knows an awful lot about what should be being done in this country. The worry I've got is that everything now is being driven by this ludicrous green agenda that we must be carbon neutral uh, by 2032 or something like that. Nobody really cares who's got a brain, do they? Let's talk to David, uh, who is in Bermondsey. He wants to talk about Pretty Patel. Hi, David. Hello, Mike. Yeah. How are you doing? It's just, yeah, it's just what you were talking, what you were saying about um, Philip Blutman calling yeah. him a plank. Uh-huh. I just think, Mike, it's very insulting when we don't really know what's happened yet. Well, I'm not, base, I'm not basing his plankery on what he's done or not done. I'm basing it on what he did on Saturday. Well, I thought it was you in, uh, when he... Just about the accusations of bullying. I thought that's why you were calling him a plank. No, I'm calling him a plank because he decided it was a great idea to have a press conference uh, at which he would invite the BBC on a Saturday morning uh, uh, and he would make a big song and dance about the fact that he was resigning a job, uh, which he's been very well paid for for a very long time, uh, because somebody else has apparently been bullied, but not him. OK, fair enough. Well, it's just some of the language. I think it's like something out of Twitter, Mike. But uh, Well, the word plank is a word that I use regularly. I've sort of reclaimed the word because I believe it not to be particularly offensive and I call people who have done something stupid right. planks, really. And I don't think anybody would mind. There's a lot of other words you could use about people which would be far more offensive. I just I mean, We do a show called Plank of the Week, you know, in which everybody no, gets I, I an opportunity. It, yeah. And so I, I, don't it, think yeah. it's, I don't think it's a, I think it's a terrible word, do you? Well, it depends how it's... Interpreted Would you prefer to use, use a different word? I think I know what you're saying by a plank, but it still doesn't sound very helpful to me, that's all. All right. Well, how would you describe him? Well, I wouldn't... I mean, I don't know what's going on, Mike. There's accusations. I can't judge. I don't know what's going on, you know? Well, what did you think of his press conference? I, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't judge it, Mike. I mean, I wasn't really? there. It's their business. Well, he was on TV. He didn't see it. I, I, well, I might have missed. I, might, I saw when he was talking to the cameras yeah. and talking about. Somebody was holding an umbrella over him. Yeah, okay. Well, we might be talking about different things, Mike. It's just, just the word plank. Okay. I'm sorry you dis- disapprove of the word plank, David. But, you oh, know. No, Mike, 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 Mike. Yeah. I don't th- it's about this where we don't know what's gone on. Yes. That's, and words like plank are being used. That's well, no. what's fine. Well, they're not really. They've been used by me because. Um, I believe that what he did on Saturday was a plankish thing to do. It doesn't really matter what went on before that, and I'm not making a judgment on that. Okay. Hi. So there we are. But there we are. Thank you, David. Very kind. It's always good to get words out there because words are very interesting. Words are very specific. And the way that I use words is very specific. And the fact that we can do, for example, a show called Plank of the Week in which all sorts of people can be called planks. This week, for example, uh, Kim Jong-un is in there. Uh, we've had the Iranian government in there as a plank. We've had Harvey Weinstein in as a plank. You know, we've had Prince Andrew in as a plank. We've had all sorts of people, Jolian Maugham in as a plank. You know, the list goes on and on and on. There's so many of them. Uh, Sadiq Khan won Plank of the Month for February. Now, you can't tell me that's not accurate, can you? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.